Well, good morning. Good morning. Hope that you've had you a wonderful week and that you're looking for an exciting week to come and that you really sense that you're being energized by the Holy Spirit, renewed, re-strengthened, and made ready for another week to run for our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And I pray that you will run well in such a manner that truly uh, it would be for the glory of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are his people. So let's live for him. Let's glorify him. Amen. Now, what I want to be able to do today is we're going to talk about this purpose of Jesus' birth. And I know that we put a heavy emphasis upon him coming as our Savior, and we should. But it's much more. Oftentimes we forget that being saved is only the beginning of a wonderful, wonderful life. It is not the end per se, it's the beginning. And it all starts there with being saved and uh, coming to that place where we surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. But we need to look even a little bit further of the purpose of his coming. <clears throat> he did come to save us, but he come to do so much more that oftentimes we forget about because we're just so excited by just being saved or we're so satisfied with just being saved because now we don't worry no more about going to hell or, or anything like that. But it doesn't really straighten out our lives the way it should. And Jesus come to do more than just save us. He come to correct us and to teach us. And he come to rule in our lives. And that's what we want to look at if we can today. And I hope that uh, the Holy Spirit would give me words to help make it clear and that we may understand it and that we may walk away from here saying, I want that to happen in my life. I want that to happen in my life. I desire that to happen in my life, that God would rule and reign in my life. So let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you, Lord, for another day. And we thank you for the gift of eternal life through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we pray, Father, as we sit at his feet today, that he might teach us and that we might sense a calling on our lives to draw closer to him and never be satisfied where we are at the very moment, but desiring more of him, more of him, the songwriter wrote, more of Jesus I would know. Make it so in our lives. And Lord, bless this time as we spend it together in your word. And for all those who would hear that we may not never meet, oh God, would you undertake in their lives? Would you do something very special in their lives that they might know, oh God, that they are not forgotten by thee? Would you touch them anew and afresh? And for that one, Lord, that is struggling or that one who has covered with you in prayer and who is fasting for something, would you give them, Lord, a breakthrough? Would you help them, O oh God, to overcome and have victory in that which they are praying for? And Father, we'll give you all the praise and all the glory because, Lord, you are our living God and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. The purpose of Jesus coming. Jesus come to us as a born child. And yet, far more 
than to just save us. He comes into this world as a child. He experiences real life. And he leaves us with a dynamic example of how to even live this life. But more than that, he's going to teach us how to live this life. Because, see, it's more than saving us from sin. And for a lot of us, that's all that is important for us, that we sense or feel that we've been saved from our sins. Uh, And that is, I cannot tell you how important that really is. It is. But there's so much more also. We know he didn't come to restore a fallen Israel. That is not the main point. Yes, Israel is his timetable, but that is not his main reason for coming to restore a dynasty or a kingdom that had fallen, that he had chosen to really live out his examples and his teaching. And yet that did not happen. There was a failure there. Israel was overcome by its own religiousosity and its traditions and was put into slavery many different times. And the last one that we see that is governing over Israel, in a sense, is the Roman kingdom or the Roman Empire. And the Roman power or government is not the reason in which Jesus came to overthrow their government, per se. But he came to set up his own government or his own kingdom. I know that's an issue for a lot of Christians when we talk about Jesus having a kingdom here. Jesus' kingdom is not the boundaries that we're used to thinking of for a king to rule in. The boundaries like the United States and the boundaries of Canada and the boundaries of Mexico. The laws in the United States have no effect really in Mexico and the Mexican laws have no effect here in the United States and the same with Canada. They have their boundaries. They have their own parliaments or their own government that they run, and we have ours. But we have boundaries for that. The kingdom in which Jesus Christ sets up has no boundaries. And we need to understand that. It has no boundary. Because the government and the kingdom that he is going to set up is not about land. It's about the hearts of people. It's about the hearts of people. Go with me to Luke seventeen twenty one, Because we need to understand that right off the bat. Because he's going to call himself when we get over into Luke, not in Luke, but over in Isaiah 9. He's going to say he's going to govern. He's going to rule. Well, very quickly, if you're going to govern and rule, you've got to have something that you're going to govern and rule. 
What are the boundaries? What's the territory? We're used to hearing people governing like uh, Putin who governs over in Russia and, and their laws and so forth. And uh, the the parliament over in England, they govern over there, but there's boundaries and so forth that are set forth. But Jesus rules over a kingdom that has no boundaries. It includes all ethnic groups, all peoples, all nations, all tribes, all languages. It has no boundaries. It has no boundaries at all. Turn to 1721 and read there with me because it's important that we get this understanding of it. He says, Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. Talking about his kingdom, or talking about him. He says, Nor will people say, here it is, or there it is. Because the kingdom, catch this now, the kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is within you. Once having been asked, coming back up into verse 20, once having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. They're looking for boundaries. They're looking for a nation. They're looking for something that is totally opposite of what Jesus is referring to. He said, it doesn't come with your careful observation. Your observation of boundaries and lines and markers and this and that doesn't come that way. And 21, he says, no will people say, here it is. Or there it is. There's the boundaries. There's the markers. We've identified it. You know, um, it's strange how you can identify even from state to state. Because when you're leaving Ohio, they let you know that you are leaving Ohio and entering Pennsylvania. Uh, and each state lets you know when you're leaving one and yet entering into another. And he says, it's not by observation. He says, there it is. No, because of this. Because the kingdom of God is within you. Where is God reigning? In you. Where is Jesus sitting on his throne? In you. It's in your heart. That he's reigning, he's ruling, he's sitting on the throne of your life, my life, if we allow him to do so. It's not taken by force. It's not taken by force. Oh, there's a battle that goes on for it, yes. But God will not rule in your life at this time by force. It will not happen. But he sent one to rule over you if you will allow him to do so. In Galatians 4.4 4, he says in the fullness of time 
that he would send forth his son. Born of a woman, born under the law. In the fullness or the ripeness of time, he would send forth. And that fullness has it that when everything is in its right place, then Jesus would come. When everything is in its right place, Jesus would come. Well, some may say, well, why didn't he come right after the fall of Adam? We have the promises in Genesis 3.15 that he would come. Why didn't he come then? Why didn't he come after the flood, after Noah had set back up? Why didn't he come then? Why didn't he come the moment that he was leading the people out of Egypt? Why didn't he come then? And we can go on down through scripture and ask that question. Why didn't he come then? It was not the fullness of time. Everything had not been put in his right place. And understand this simple little principle. You may have heard me say it before. God is not in a hurry. We don't have the time God has. But God is time. And he's not in a hurry. And we need to understand that. The Roman government is the closest thing to God's government in a sense. Now, I understand there is a vast difference between the Roman government and God's government. But the Roman government is the only government that really set itself up in a way in which God is setting up his government. And sometimes we'll miss it if we don't take a close look at it. It was the largest government or empire ever ruled by man. It stretched from Africa to Scotland. It was huge. It included Thousands of languages, cultures, tribes, just a mixture of people at that time. And the Roman road, and oftentimes some will say the gospel didn't come because it took the Romans to make the roads to get to all these different places in which the gospel could have come. That may have been, that could have been part of it, but the thing is, the Romans were over more ethnic groups of people than any other empire. And the Roman Empire did something else. The Roman Empire incorporated many other nations into its culture. If you would remember in scripture, it speaks about Paul being a Roman. And Paul in Acts even declares his Roman citizenship that he's a Roman. Well, that just didn't happen with Paul as far as we understand history. That may have happened back somewhere with his father or grandfather who had become a Roman citizen, whether by purchasing it or accepting a Roman style of government or whatever, or lifestyle. But there was something that moved them from just their Judaism to 
Roman lifestyle or Roman citizenship. Uh, and we need to understand all of the governments before Rome took the best of the people back to their country. And you see that in Daniel when the Babylonians took the best of Israel into captivity. And that was something that every uh, king and empire that somehow enslaved another, another group basically took the very best of the people back to their country and then destroyed their warriors and their military. But Roman did just the opposite. Now, that is not to say Rome did not take some of the people back to their own country. The ones they took was usually those who were slaves and of low income. Um, they took them. But people of nobility and uh, people of any intelligence... Rome was out to convert them to Roman citizenship, to bring them to a lifestyle like the Romans, and to teach them Roman law. That's one of the reasons we knew that Paul also used Roman law in saying what was not right for him to be beaten when he was a Roman citizen, and he could appeal to Caesar which he did. And the thing is, that was in Roman law, and that's what Paul followed. But Paul had to learn that from someone. Paul had to be taught that by someone. It just didn't just drop out the sky to Paul. Paul had to be taught that and learned what his rights were as a Roman citizen. But Rome did something very similar to what God does. Rome would take people and he would train those individuals and that would be a, even a Herod under Roman law that would be a pilot, a governor. You would see that Rome placed its people or trained people in places to govern over Israel and over different territories in which it conquered. And the job of the governor was to convert the people to Roman lifestyle and Roman law. That was the job of the governor or the Tetran, which was the Roman name for the governor, Tetran. And they were to convert those captive individuals into Roman citizens and to span that whole philosophy of Rome. Now, we need to understand Jesus is sent to make citizens of those who are here to make us citizens of heaven, to teach us the laws of heaven, 
to convert us to a heavenly lifestyle that is acceptable in God's sight. And Jesus come to govern or to rule in the hearts of such people who are willing to submit themselves to God. And we need to understand that. Now, go also with me in Luke chapter 1. And then we're going to see some similarities over in Isaiah 9, where we're going to somewhat finish out at. But I do want you to look at this, because it's so familiar. Um, when we read Luke 1, 31 through 33, and then when we read Isaiah 9, six to seven, there's some similarities there. And yet these two authors have written years apart. But I want you to hear it and we're going to somewhat go back then into Isaiah chapter nine and look at verses six and seven and see if we can see some clarity there that helps us tie in even with what is said here in Luke one 31 to 33. So he says in that verse 31, get these eyes focused, you will be with child and give birth to a son and you will give and you will give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign. He will reign. What will he do? He will reign. He will rule. He will govern. Over the house of Jacob forever. Not just for a short period. Keep that word forever. His kingdom will have, will never end. His kingdom will never end. Why? Because he's an everlasting God. He's an everlasting Father. His kingdom will never, never end. And he will rule over the house of Jacob. And we need to understand that he is the Son of the Most High. And that he was given to us. And he says to Mary, you will be with child and give birth to a son. A son will be born unto you and unto us. A son will be born. And the government shall be on his shoulders. Go to Isaiah now with me. Let's start off verse 6. And he brings this out to us very clearly here. And I want us to take note of it because it's important. He says, for to us a child is born. To us a child is born. Not just to Mary. Not just to Israel. But to us. To the world. To all 
who need him. A child is born. To us a son is given. John 3.16 God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. A son is given. But now what comes true even from that Luke chapter 1 31-33 it says and the government or the rule or the authority will be on his shoulders will be on his shoulders for this kingdom that is in us there is one that if we have accepted the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior who is the governor or ruler of our lives and somehow we twisted that that we think we're the ruler of Jesus and we tell him all that we want and all that we desire and he's supposed to go get it for us no we don't reign over him we don't rule over him we have no authority over him but he rules over us and he has full authority over our lives our problem is we still have to learn how to be citizens of heaven and he says and the government will be on his shoulders now government has a great responsibility and one of the great responsibilities that any government has is to educate its people is to have a peaceful society in which the people may be able to learn and practice what they learn and pro- prosper by that which they have learned. Now, I want you to understand something. The government is on his shoulder. But let me ask you something. When Jesus came into this world, what was this world like? How might Jesus find this world? That's something to really think about. And I want you to take a note with me. Men's minds were filled with error. With all the pagan philosophy, all the idols, and even Israel itself had left the very basis of its foundation, foundational teaching about God, and even this Messiah who was to come. That they were basically now following their own laws and their own traditions and their own formalities of religion. They were the chosen people, but they had fallen because of their traditions and formalism that they were basically practicing and living out. They were not living out what God desired them to live out. They were doing basically what they wanted to do. 
That's why Jesus corrects them even in the temple and in many other things that they were doing. People were prideful. They were selfish. And they were people who hated. Nowhere do we have in scripture that Jesus hated the Romans. Or he hated the Gentiles. Or he hated any ethnic group at all. But that he loved all people. He ministered to all people. He taught all people who would allow him to teach or they would sit in his presence and learn. He taught. He came into a world of unrighteousness and impurity. Many of the temples of that day had prostitutes in them, male prostitutes, female prostitutes, things that you would do that somehow they would call right and holy was just outright debauchery and just outright wrong and lustfulness. It was sinful, immoral type of life that was being lived. He came to undo the wrong. And we need to understand that. That's why the government would be on his shoulder. The government is responsible for educating. The government is responsible for setting forth that which is right. The government is responsible to punish that which is wrong and bring about a correction. The government is responsible to the people. And Jesus is responsible to the people. That's why he tells us we can cast all of our care upon him. Because he responds to our needs. He responds to that which needs to be corrected in our lives. And he says that he come to take the government of the hearts of people. And he would rule in our hearts and our and his kingdom would have no end. Because what he does in my life He's doing in the life of somebody in China, somebody in Russia, somebody in Saudi Arabia. He is ruling in their life, even in the life of somebody in Iran who believes and trusts him for the salvation that he gives them and how he's going to teach them. He's ruling there. And we need to understand that. It's not by force. It's not by force that he governs. It's not by force that he rules. But it's by a demonstration of love. God simply says in John 3.16, God so loved the world. Not just one group of people. Not just the chosen people. Not just Israel. Not just Caucasians. Not just blacks. Not just this group over here or over there. But God so loved the world. The complete world, all the world, all nations, all people. God loves us. Doesn't matter what my background may be. Doesn't matter what my nationality might be. It doesn't matter what color my skin might be. 
God loves you. And that's important for us to understand. Go to Romans 5, 8, but keep your thing, your finger right there in Isaiah 9. But run over to Romans 5, 8 with, with me because you need to see this. And I know faith comes by hearing, but we can hear a lot of things and we don't respond to them. But he wants us to also see this love letter that he's written to us and and to trust what's in the pages of this book. Don't trust what I'm saying. Trust this book. Get into this book. Okay? And there's no problem. You can call me. You can write me. You can do whatever and say, Pastor Brown, you missed it by a mile. I'm okay with that. Because that would take me back into the book to check what I said to see if I was right or wrong. So in that Romans 5.8, listen to what he says. But God demonstrates his own love. God's doing what? He's demonstrating his love. Not his might, not his power per se, though that is there. And he does use his power, his strength, but not in a way to make me do something that I don't want to do or surrender to him. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died for us. He sent his son into the world to educate us and to die for us. And to teach us how to live for God, but also how to die for the one who loves us. That is something to grasp hold of and hold on to. Now, the government cares for the people. And the government's responsibility is to provide peace and the ability to live a productive life. That's what the government is to do. And that government now is placed on his shoulders. And he provides me with peace. Because understand this, and we're going to look at it a little further back there in Isaiah 9. He is the Prince of Peace. But understand this, you can't function without peace of mind. You can't function without peace somehow surrounding you. And that's why he said he'll even make your enemies live at peace with you. When you serve God, he understands you can't really function for his glory or his praise without peace. you got to have peace here and peace here. And when he governs and he's ruling and you're following him, you're going to be at peace with yourself. And you're going to be at peace with God. And you're going to be at peace with your fellow men. That you might carry out the will of God. And that you might minister to your fellow man. Whether he be a believer or unbeliever. That you have the ability. Because you're at peace with God. To minister to someone else. Christians who are all confused and uneducated in a sense, and I'm not saying you're ignorant. I'm not saying that. I know very little. There are men far, far smarter than I am, and I admit that. 
But I think I can sit down with just about anybody and share this word with them. And that if they desire to be saved and then learn of the Lord, that it can take place through this book. And he said he's come to govern over us and rule over us. Government has a great responsibility to the people. And Jesus does really have that great responsibility to us. And that's why he says in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all of our cares upon him. Because you can't function well when you have all the worldly problems and cares that you're trying to deal with. And you got to give them over to him. Let him have them. Let him take care of them. And he will. It's not about what's happened in your past. You got to give that to Jesus in order to function. If not, you're not functioning at your best for the Lord. And some of you have went through some horrific things in your life. There are some things that have happened to women in their life that they don't want to remember, but it's it's there. There's some pain in life that you've gone through that you don't want to remember. That's happened also to men. There's some terrible things that have happened to men that are just unspeakable. But those things only a mighty God can heal and put behind and give you a self-worth that you can move forward for his glory because you're valuable to him. You're worthy in his eyesight and you are loved by him. And he's able, he's more than able to help you move forward if you're willing to cast all those cares upon him and learn of him who is gentle, who's understanding and kind, who is forgiving, and he'll move you forward. And the government, remember, is on his shoulders. Now, the very next thing that follows is so important because it takes place within this area of him ruling and governing your life and my life. And we have to understand that, that the only way God corrects error is by truth. In John one seventeen, he says, came in grace and truth. The grace is the favor of God to bring you this truth, to bring you out of darkness and into light. And this truth, it comes to us through Jesus Christ because everything else prior to that has been corrupted in some way, some manner. And God himself comes to bring this correction and this truth to us in Jesus Christ. Because only truth can remove error. Only truth can correct the wrong. And that's something that 
you and I have to understand. Jesus' main ministry is not healing. Jesus' main ministry is teaching. Is teaching. Because teaching corrects the errors of the past. Teaching corrects the present wrong thinking that many of us hold on to and live day by day by rather than by his word and what is right. Wrong is changed to right only when someone understands they are wrong. And usually we only come to a point of understanding that we're wrong if we are taught what is right. Now, you can be taught what is right, but that doesn't mean you are willing to do what is right. Only when you accept this truth as truth and righteousness and perform it. That's why James says that you would be a doer of the word. Because in doing the word, you find out the validity of that word and how true it is and how powerful it is and the type of lifestyle that it is able you to live. So James says be a doer of it, not just a hearer of it, but do it, practice it, live it out. And he wants you to do that. Why? Because the one who comes to rule in your life and govern in your life has to educate you, has to teach you. And he does it through his Holy Spirit. And these words that follow are so important. Now, I want to also state this because sometimes when you read different translations, you can see a little difference in word and we get all knotted up over these sometimes little differences in our translations and we want to make something bigger than what they are. And in the King James, it lists five names maybe possible for Jesus. And the five are, one is wonderful, then counselor, then mighty God, then everlasting father, then prince of peace. Now, in some of the others, wonderful is not set off by itself. There's not a comma between wonderful and counselor. It is wonderful counselor. It is mighty God. It's everlasting father. It's prince of peace. There's that introduction part before counselor. Just like in the rest of the verse, you have this word before Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. With Counselor, you have Wonderful Counselor. You could not ex explain Jesus any better in that form in one of his titles or names that he really functions in our life as a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful counselor, an outstanding counselor. When you get into this book and you allow his teaching and the Holy Spirit to minister to you, they will counsel you through the worst situations of life. He will guide you through the worst circumstances of life. 
and you'll be saying, as the song says, you'll wonder how you got over, because he is a wonderful counselor. He will guide you if you're willing to have an ear, and you're willing to give him that ear, not just hear him, but hear him and do what he says. And he says, he's a wonderful counselor. Now, doing what is right is not just a thing of just hearing about right or righteousness. You have to be convinced inside the heart that this is truth. And now you are willing to accept it and to do it and to live by it. And that you recognize he is a wonderful, wonderful counselor. Now, the thing is, with wonderful counselor, every good counselor will tell you they're a teacher. They're a teacher. A counselor is a good teacher that teaches you how to, I would say, not just cope with life, but how to live life in a manner that is prosperous for you healthy for you that's good for you and it's not certain that you're somebody special with that it's part of everyday life that if you're in this sector as a Christian Jesus is going to teach us through the Holy Spirit how to live a prosperous wonderful life He's going to counsel us through the difficulties of life. He's going to teach us and guide us through those difficulties and those struggles of life, those hard times of life, those hardships of life. He's going to be right there to minister to us. And there's where he is governing and he's ruling. When we allow him to be the counselor of our life. And he is a wonderful, wonderful counselor. Now, if, if you would, you would you go with me? Oh, boy. The James I want to go to. Let's see if we can get to James and see if I can find where I want to get to here. Because James kind of speaks about it. And we do want to be able to dig out the very best that we can in this. Go to James chapter 3. A good counselor imparts wisdom. But wisdom without knowledge is not understood and is useless. That's why he tells us, though one gains wisdom, to also get knowledge. Wisdom will show you how to use the knowledge that you possess. And God does gives us knowledge, but he gives us the wisdom to know how to use this knowledge properly that we may be a blessing to others. So in James 3... 17, he says, but the wisdom that comes from heaven, now, now follow this with me, is pure. There's no error in it. 
There's no falseness in it. It's pure. There's no deceit in it. It's pure. Then he says, and peace loving. Peace loving. God is at peace with us. And when someone's at peace with you, they do care about you. They love you. You're not at war with each other. You're not hating each other. You're not backbiting each other. You're not hurting each other. But what you're desiring is peace and love with that individual. And he says the wisdom or the teaching that comes from God, the counsel that comes from the Lord Jesus Christ, is pure and peace-loving. And he goes on and he says, it's considerate. Considerate of what? It's considerate of me. Every one of us is different. All of our hurts and our emotions have run the gamut, but they're different. They're, they can be similar, but they're different. My hurt may be the same type of hurt or accident that you may have went through, a situation you went through, but how my emotions handle that might be different. And he's considerate of us. He's kind and gentle with us. He's loving towards us. He's patient with us. He's considerate towards how life has thrown curves at me and the bumps that I've hit in life and the damage that I've done to my own life. He's considerate. Then the wisdom or the counseling that he gives me is submissive. It's not, for, it's not forceful. He moves at a pace with me. I would never think that even a tutor or someone who tutors or someone who teach, you can try to force feed or you can try to force teach. You got to be submissive to the learning ability of that student. You got to be submissive to how quick that student might learn from you. You have to be submissive to the one that you are trying to assist and to help. And he says submissive, but catch what follows that submissiveness, full of mercy. Full of mercy. You're not getting what you really deserve, but I'm being merciful. I'm being understanding. I'm being patient. I'm being kind rather than rude and hateful. I'm not punishing as hard as I could. Being more lenient. Full of mercy. For what reason? And good fruit. Good fruit. Some grounds you have to work a little harder at. 
in order to really bring good fruit from. Some grounds take more work than other, take more fertilizer, takes more water. Some vegetables that you may plant takes more care and looking after than some other plants. But you have to submit yourself to taking care of those plants as they have need. And that's what God does in our life through Jesus Christ, this wonderful counselor. He takes care and he submits himself, in a sense, to what our needs are and what it takes to grow us and to educate us and to teach us that he may rule in our life, not by force, but by love. And he goes on, he says, impartial. He's not prejudiced. What he does for one, he'll do it for someone else. May not be the exact same thing because that may not be what the need is. But out of the same care and love and tenderness will be shown. The same patience will be shown. Impartial. I don't care what ethnic group you are, what color you are, what your background might be, what pains and hurt, he will deal with you impartially. Because he knows you need love and you need guidance and you need counseling and you need correction in your life. We all need that. And he'll minister to us impartially. But he knows what our needs are and where he needs to start. And he says, and sincere. And sincere. Whether you're up here or down here, whether you're rich, poor, uh, intellectual, ignorant, don't have the basis. He's sincere as he teaches us. He's sincere as he cares for us. His wisdom is there for us. He's a wonderful, wonderful counselor. And then he says, a peacemaker who sows in peace raises a harvest. Now look what the end result is. Raises a harvest. Of righteousness. In who? In us. When this wonderful counselor is perfecting in us, is this thing of righteousness that he's developing as we learn to live life as citizens of heaven. He's a wonderful, wonderful counselor. He's a mighty God, and that's what it would take. It would take a God of power. It would take a God who can set earth out here on nothing, but only speak it and it stays. It is a powerful God who can somehow take Israel out of the powerful hands of the most powerful nation, Egypt, and bring them unto himself. 
is a powerful God who is able to raise the dead is a powerful God who can hold back his wrath from those who are deserving of his wrath and his destruction. It is a powerful God who can hold his anger from spilling out on us. It's a powerful God. And he said it's a mighty God. Now, I don't have much more time, but I do just want to hit this last little thing because it says eternal Father. Remember when it says his kingdom would be forever eternal? The reason the kingdom or this government is forever is because he's an everlasting father. Forever and ever and ever and ever for eternity. And we need to catch that picture. That his kingdom will have no end. His rule in our hearts will have no end. If you've come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And you have submitted to the government or the governing of your life through Jesus Christ. He's going to rule in your life from now on, even throughout eternity. He's going to rule. And his kingdom is within you. That has no boundaries. And I want you to understand that. It will have no end. When you are saved, it's only the beginning. It is not the end. For it has no end. He's going to govern over us. He's going to care for us. He's going to provide for us. He's going to do what one as a governor does. He's going to educate us, teach us. He's going to be that wonderful counselor to us. He's going to be that mighty God to us. He's going to bring that peace into our life that we have need of because he knows we cannot function without that peace. And then it also says his kingdom, this is what's going to happen. In verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace. We see it that is spreading in China, in Africa, in Iran, in Saudi Arabia, in different parts of the world that we would have never thought of. He's reigning. His kingdom is increasing, is growing. Boy, that's wonderful. Isn't that exciting? I pray that you're really a part of the kingdom of God and that he rules in your life. And you know that he rules. You know that he governs over your life. And that he is the one who truly cares for you. Oh, it's just amazing. In the fullness of time, he sent forth his son. When everything was just right, when everything was in the way in which he wanted it to be, his son came unto us. And I want you to really grasp hold of that. That I hear these arguments sometimes that there is no kingdom. Not yet, not yet. God is ruling in our lives. And one thing about a king is this here. 
he does rule. One thing about a governor, he does rule. And we're not talking about ruling over land or over boundaries or certain areas or certain states or certain. We're talking about ruling in here. Does God really rule in your life? Boy, there's nothing wrong with arguing with your king. I do it quite a bit. I argue with the one who rules over me. And sometimes, boy, I got to debate with him about what he's saying in here. But I got to remember one of the things about a governor or those who rule over a people. They are converting a people to a different lifestyle than what they've been used to. They are teaching them how to become citizens of heaven. I am still learning how to become a citizen of heaven through the one who governs over my life. And one day, I'm going to be in heaven. One day, I'm going to be in heaven. I don't know exactly when. I can't tell you the date or the hour, but he's already got it set for me. I'm going to be there. And I'm going to see my King of Kings, that I'm my Lord of Lords, and the one who has reigned over my life. I pray that you'll be able to do that likewise. God bless you, and may God keep you. Father, thank you for this time. Would you take your word and somehow, Lord, mash it into our lives, put it into our lives, twist it into our lives, cause us to regurgitate it, think it over. Oh, God, how rich it is. Let us not miss it. Let it be, oh, God, a sweet taste in our mouths. And, Lord, we thank you for ruling in our lives. We thank you for correcting us, and we thank you for teaching us. Would you bless your people this week? Would you help them to overcome the difficulties of life? Those who are wearied and tired and broken, would you mend? Would you give strength? Would you give power, O oh God? Would you enable, O oh God, that they may overcome and live in that life that you have called them to live in? And we'll give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. May God keep you. Looking forward to see you again next week as we continue with this. Bye-bye.